The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to be void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we realize this morning that there is a sense where we are still old people, uh, people with the flesh and the sinful nature, with the habits of our sinful former selves, still very much still present, still very much capable of walking in a way that is not fit, not worthy of the gospel that you've brought. And yet, Jesus, we also know that you can give new hearts. And that for those of us that have come after you on the road of discipleship, that you have given us not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, a heart with your very law written upon it, a heart that loves to obey and loves to delight you. Jesus, this morning, would you help us even as we hear these words you said so long ago and to realize that you said them not just for the people back then, but for us, for us to hear so that our hearts might be turned toward you and renewed for your kingdom. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. With the changing of eras, some things stay the same and some things change. It's inevitable. Um, I recently had a change of era in my personal life. Last weekend, I officially entered middle age, hitting the big 4-0. And I have to say, there are many things that seem like they're exactly the same. I don't look all that different. At least I don't think so yet. You can tell me if I'm off on that. I still like a lot of the same things. I'm still drinking my same coconut buy drink every Sunday morning. Lord willing, I'm still preaching the same gospel. I'm the same guy. Uh, but on Friday, I found out one of the changes that came with this new era where our family went to the state fair. Someone had very kindly given us some wristbands to be able to have unlimited rides for all of the roller coasters and various thingamajigs that make you move at weird angles. You can probably see where this is going. Now, I love roller coasters. I've always loved roller coasters. Um, so my kids were very excited for their daddy to go with them on roller coasters. I was doing just fine until I got to the one that's like Superman. You know, you're kind of like laying down, going in a circle with a little bit of wiggle back and forth. And I found out the new era comes with new rules. Uh, for the rest of the day, I was uh, very much dealing with nausea and no good for anyone. Uh, a new era. Some things stay the same, and some things change. 
You can think about that for your personal life. You can think about that much larger scale. Think about all the eras that we've gone through as humanity. You can break them very roughly. The pre-modern era, doing almost everything by hand, struggling to survive in many ways. Uh, the modern era, the advent of industry and light bulbs and electricity and the wonders of technology. And now the post-modern era, still much more technology, but less trust in everything. Lots and lots of things have changed. Your life is very different from the people who lived 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking and talking on this earth. But there's one thing that's the same from the old era to these new ones, and that's the nature of the human heart. Jesus is going to give us a laser-focused view on the fundamental problem that has been with humanity down through all the different eras, uh, that problem of our sinful hearts. Our sins are far worse than we ever imagined. Jesus will show us they are a very stench in the nostrils of God. And there's nothing we can do to reform them on our own. But unlike the eras that have come before, a new era is breaking in. An era that starts with renewed hearts and ends with a renewed world. Uh, it's a work that only Jesus himself can do giving us new hearts to be ready for the new era of the kingdom of God. That's my main burden this morning, is to convince you from this text that you need a new heart for the kingdom of God, and you can only get it from King Jesus. I will see that in three sections as we move through this short passage. First, we'll see our interior problem our interior problem of the heart. Second, we'll see God's intact law. God's intact law. And third, we'll hear the kingdom's insistent call. The kingdom's insistent call. And all this, we'll see the new era of the kingdom requires a new heart from the king. Let's begin that first section, our interior problem. If you're with us last week, Jesus had been having a conversation with his disciples on the issue of stewardship. He challenged them, it's not possible for you to love both God and money. It's got to be one or the other. Uh, will you be generous, preparing yourself for eternity that's coming, or will you try and hold on to the things God has given you? In teaching that, though, it turns out it wasn't just the disciples that were hearing what Jesus was saying. Uh, it's almost as if the camera pans back, and you can see more people in that same scene that have been listening to the whole thing. We're told in verse 14 that the Pharisees overheard what he was saying as well. Uh, you can almost predict where this is going. Uh, the Pharisees, it's not hard to tell, are not going to be on board with Jesus' teaching about stewardship because they were people that had made money their master. So as a result, they ridicule Jesus. Maybe they're saying something like, sure, Jesus would say that. I mean, he would say that we shouldn't find our treasures in this world. After all, he's a nobody from Nazareth, a, a penniless preacher telling other people how to be penniless themselves. Now, it's understandable why they would think such thoughts. Uh, back then, the, most people assumed 
that if you were righteous, that mean you would, means that you would also be rich. That with a life that was aligned with God would come the good life, having fine clothes and a fine house. But Jesus was teaching something very different, and that offended their sensibilities. So we read in verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. But Jesus does not respond out of a heart that's offended, as he often does. He cuts straight to the heart. Look what he does in verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus starts by telling them, outward appearances really don't matter. The opinions of your neighbors really doesn't matter. Even having the large crowd applauding you, ultimately it doesn't matter. What matters is not what people think of you, but what God thinks of you. Uh, Jesus used a phrase there, God knows your hearts. Dr. Phil Riken pointed out that we in our Christian vernacular have a phrase, sounds very similar, but means something very different. Uh, we say, oh, God knows your heart to someone as a way of excusing some sin. Uh, maybe they let a word slip that they are now regretting. We say, oh, don't worry, God knows your heart. It wasn't that bad. Or maybe they have some relational conflict that's really tearing them up. And they say, you know what? You may not be able to fix this, but God knows your heart. As a way of saying, you're being too hard on yourself, right? We use that phrase. And it's not always inappropriate. But more often than not, our view of our own sins is much less severe than God's view of our sins. Uh, Jesus uses that phrase, God knows your hearts as a threatening judgment. Uh, God knows exactly what your hearts are like. And what he sees, it's not pretty. You can know that from the next verse right afterward. He says essentially the same thing. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The things we lift up as good and noteworthy and applause-worthy God says are worthy of condemnation. I learned something this week, that uh, term abomination, it's got roots in the Old Testament. It's actually an old Hebrew idiom for stench, something really repugnant, something that's turned rotten, that awful whiff as it enters your nostrils. That's the picture of the stinky state of our souls as the Sins that plague us cause God to re respond to us with rightful revulsion. According to Jesus, there's lots of things that we are going to think among the crowd are praiseworthy and should be lifted up. But in God's sight are, in fact, a stench so great that he can't stand it. Now, we need to just pause at this moment and realize how often the assumptions of a particular day don't match up with God's actual opinion of the matter. Back, back then with the Pharisees, uh, they certainly had many assumptions about what God thought, well, about, uh, what God thought was righteous and good. Uh, they 
imagined themselves to be the keepers of God's law, those who were truly righteous, the ones who showed what the right path was to walk upon. Yet, in fact, Jesus says that their hearts are full of mainly greed and love of money. Uh, We live in a different age, different era, and there's a different set of assumptions today than there were back then. And yet this same dynamic is still true. We assume things about our hearts that are totally different than the way God thinks of them. Uh, Most people today operate under the assumption that the problem with the world and even the problems in their lives are mostly on the outside. Uh, The problem is that there are unjust structures in society. The problem is that you have parents that try and hold you back and don't believe in your dreams. Uh, The problem is that you don't have the right opportunities or the right resources or the right friends to make you feel good and live up to your potential, to be able to be the real you. Isn't that pretty much the plot of every movie that's come out over the last 20 years? But as much as those assumptions feel very natural to us, uh, according to the Bible, it's the exact opposite way that God thinks of the real problem with our hearts and the world. Uh, Yes, the world's broken. And one day Jesus will do something about it. But Jesus starts on the inside, not on the outside. He cares far more about our idolatry and our love for pleasure and the mastery money has over our inner person than he does about the things around us. Again, that's not to say those things are unnecessary or that one day he won't fix them all. He has already revealed that he will. But before we think about fixing the world, we have to think first about fixing our hearts. And how can a person possibly do that? Well, that's what brings us to our second point this morning. Uh, How is it that we can deal with our interior problem? That brings us to the section dealing with God's intact law. Um, There is a a shortcoming that I think I've been told all of us have. Uh, We fail to be able to notice our own body odor. Have you noticed that? Uh, Usually, if you smell bad, you're the last one to notice it. You walk into a room, if someone struggles with body odor, you immediately notice. But if you're that person, you might need someone else to point it out, or you might need to go to great lengths to figure out whether, in fact, you stink. Now, there's a spiritual analogy that goes on with our souls. On our own, we don't think things are that bad. We don't think we're the abomination before God. Surely there are some people out there, but surely not me. Surely not my life. Um, God knows that we have this sort of spiritual inability to smell the stink of our own souls, which is why he's given us something, something really, really helpful and really necessary, the law of God. Uh, You see, the law of God can't fix your heart, but it can do something really, really important. It can help you know that your heart is broken beyond all fixing based on your own efforts, Uh, which is why it's such a bad idea to try and do away with or find your way around the law of God. 
Because if you remove your sense of your need for forgiveness and healing, then you'll see no need for Jesus. Um, there have been teachers down through the ages that have tried to find ways around uh, what Jesus refers to here as the law and prophets. Uh, that's shorthand for your entire Old Testament. Uh, one particular teacher from the second century, Marcion, he, he uh, said that the God of the Old Testament was vengeful and wrathful and angry, so much different than Jesus. So we should just forget about all that old stuff and focus on him. Um, and down through the ages, there have been others that have tried to do the same thing. There's a very popular preacher just a few years ago. He suggested that modern evangelical Christians, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, that we shouldn't pay much attention to what it says, and we certainly shouldn't try to defend it against the uh, accusations when we're evangelizing to someone, that we just focus on Jesus and the resurrection and forget about all that Old Testament Israel stuff. Uh, but there's a problem with that. Well, one, it will do you great harm to your own soul, as we'll see in a second. But secondly, it's not the opinion Jesus had about the Old Testament. These two verses show us the way Jesus thought of the Old Testament. And he held it in high regard indeed. He said, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Uh, Jesus starts off with that macro view again. You want to think in terms of eras. Uh, there was a period where God's revelation, could, you could describe it as the, the era of the law and the prophets. That's everything from God creating the world and Adam and Eve to the covenants God makes with Israel, all the histories recorded about the kings and the nations, even the poetry that's recorded in the Psalms. Then, then we get to the, the prophets, all those men who are given messages and given sermons to preach to God's people about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the nation. Now, that whole era extends a little farther than most of us would probably think. It extends all the way to John. That's not the gospel of John. That's John the Baptist. I remember him early in Luke's gospel. We spent some time looking at his ministry Jesus came along and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's whole ministry was to point people to Jesus, which makes him a fitting end for that entire Old Testament revelation, because really all of it is preparing us for the coming of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says that that was that old era but we must not think now that the new era has come that somehow the changes that come along with it mean that those scriptures of the law and prophets are somehow null and void. That's what he said there in verse 17. It's easier for the world to end, the cosmos to implode, than it is even for the tiniest detail of the law to become void. The term he uses there for the smallest detail ha, uh, has to do with uh, the 
crossing the I's, the dotting of the T's. It, it, it's even the smallest bit of what God's revealed is there on purpose. None of it will pass away. Um, so you cannot think of your Old Testament like you think of one of those old checks that maybe you wrote it intending to pay someone with it, but then something changed, so you wrote void all over it. Maybe you hold on to it for a little while, but you stuff it into a drawer. You certainly don't have any further use for it except for record keeping. That's the wrong way to think about the law and the prophets. According to Jesus, there is an ongoing significance to them. The question is, what is it? Um, clearly, there are some things that have changed between the era of the law and the prophets and now what Jesus calls the preaching of the good news of the kingdom. Uh, for instance, uh, I doubt any of you feel that the need to go to your home and to build a fence around the roof of your house. Uh, now, if you were an Israelite with a house, you would have such a moral obligation to do so. It's written in the law that you must have some sort of a guardrail around the top of your house because that was a common place for people to go and have hospitality, enjoy the evenings. So God wanted to make sure that his people were not reckless and resulting in the untimely death of their neighbor. Now, your instinct is probably right. You should not have the obligation to build that fence around the top of your house. You also should feel just fine eating shellfish. And yes, thanks be to God, bacon. But why? Why, why is that? Aren't we just picking and choosing the laws we like, the laws we don't? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, this is not a new question. Theologians have been wrestling with it for a long time. I think that one of the best shorthand ways of understanding it is what's sometimes called the threefold use of the law. It's a bit of a simplification, but it gets you a long way where you need to go. So if you think of the whole Old Testament, everything in it, you can think of three different categories. There are some things that are a part of the civil law. Uh, remember, God's people were a nation, and nations require specific laws and structures to be able to operate. Uh, that meant there were laws related to military service for young men, and there were laws about particular fines for specific uh, crimes that you com committed. Now, it would be inappropriate to take those civil laws and try to run straight to the particular nation you live in and say that because that was the law God gave back then, this must be the law we have now. Usually, the civil laws instead teach us something more broadly about God's moral character or his heart, the things he hates, the things he loves. Uh, second, you can think of the ceremonial law. Uh, there is so much of the Old Testament that's dedicated to teaching us about the temple and the tabernacle and all those bloody sacrifices that God required. Now, all of that was important. God really did require that of people. But according to the book of Hebrews, it would be completely wrong for us to go and start offering up bulls and goats in worship to God again. Uh, there are no more Levitical priests to mediate between us and God. Uh, that's because the ceremonial law mostly is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the true temple. 
where God's people gather to worship spiritually. He is the priest, the the only once-for-all mediator between God and man. And he offers himself up as the bloody sacrifice for our sins. So when you come to the sections about the temple, you should not say, okay, well, that means I, uh, I must wash my hands in this certain way, otherwise it's sin. No, you have to connect it to Christ and his work in order to make an application to yourself. Uh, the third one, category is the moral use of the law. And this is the one where that's most directly applies to our lives as Christians today. Uh, there are many things in the law that show us something about God's character, and as a result, show us something about how we must respond. As we'll see later, God hates divorce. And so there is something to our oath-keeping and something to the sanctity of marriage that we are to draw from the parts of the Old Testament that speak to the institution of marriage. Uh, God hates stealing and covetousness. He hates murder. And he calls his people to be people of uh, faithfulness and generosity and people that reflect his character to even the outsiders. So as you're reading through your Old Testament, as you, if you get to a passage you're like, I'm not sure how to apply this, ask yourself which of those three categories it fits into. And chances are you'll be a good ways to where you need to go to figuring out how you apply it to your life. Now, one thing that's clear in however we put this together is that we cannot think that the law or the Old Testament is somehow something we can just skip or unhitch our wagons from. Now, even the new era of the coming kingdom of God still has a lasting significance to the law of God. Uh, And I think broadly you could think of it in two areas. Really helpful uh, this summer, we were going through the New City Catechism with our kids. Uh, Parents, I think you stopped at question 10. If you keep going a little bit, you'll get to this specific question. This is catechism question number 15. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. Uh, You can think of it in two images. The law gives you a window into God's heart. What's he like? What's he love? What's he hate? And the law holds up a mirror to your own heart. What am I really like? What do I love? What does God think of me? Now, brothers and sisters, there are lots of ditches when it comes to applying the law. Um, into your life as a Christian. I I grew up in a sect of Christianity called Seventh-day Adventism. Um, Not all Adventists were like the ones that, in the church that I grew up in, but in our particular church, uh, the law was used as a form of earn your way to God. These are the rules. These are the rituals. Do them, and you're on the inside. Don't do them, and you're on the outside. I realize Jesus nowhere teaches that you use the law to somehow make yourself pleasing to God or somehow earn your way into the kingdom of God. No, the law shows you a window into God's heart and holds up an uncomfortable mirror so you can see your own, so you can understand your need of the Savior. We'll come back to some things about that, but for now, let me just 
exhort you not to skip your Old Testament. Uh, we as a church are committed to preaching through the whole Bible. Uh, I do series that are verse by verse through sections of the New Testament like we've been doing in Luke. And one day, Lord willing, I'll be done with Luke and we'll c find our way to some Old Testament books again like we've done in the past. Uh, my encouragement to you is in your devotions, take time to learn how to read those Old Testament books and apply them to your lives. They're there for you, for your soul, so that you might see yourself as God sees you. And you might know in an even greater degree the love of God and the grace of God that's found you in Christ Jesus. All right, the law of God can never make our hearts right. So what can? Well, that brings us to our third and final point this morning. The kingdom's insistent call. The kingdom's insistent call. Now, you may have noticed that I didn't cover part of verse 16 there. Since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Uh, Jesus says that there is these different eras, that we're now in the era of the kingdom breaking into the world. It's being preached. Starting now with the rule and reign of God coming over the hearts of people. And one day, it will extend to the rule and reign of Christ over the entire earth. Uh, but Jesus said that something is happening right now during this new era. Uh, now, this is one of the most difficult half verses to be able to translate in the New Testament. Uh, read all sorts of different ways that scholars put it together. Your ESV here translates it as everyone forces his way into it. Now, you notice, though, there's a footnote there that renders it differently. It renders it as, and everyone is first forcefully urged into it. So in one, the people are forcefully trying to get in, and the other, there's an insistent, urgent, forceful appeal for people to come in. Now, as I've been studying the passage and looking at the whole context, I actually think the footnote is what Jesus intended here. I hold that very loosely, but I have to preach it one way or the other, so here it goes. There is a call that goes out to each and every one of us from that kingdom of God, a call to come into the presence of God under the rule and reign of Christ. A call to come and have your heart transformed by King Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're someone who's been learning about the Bible and Jesus for some time, uh, you must know that the Bible undoubtedly teaches that unlike all the other religions in the world, there is no amount of following religious rules or doing rituals that can ever make you right with God. You'll never find your way to the home of the divine by being a good enough version of you, no matter what spiritual guide you find. But the Bible says instead what you need is a work that only God himself can do. You need your sins forgiven. And you need to be given a totally new heart. Well, the good news that Jesus started preaching and that, that he accomplished in his very body is that those things have actually happened so that sinners of all type, types can be saved. 
You see, Jesus came and lived a life that followed all of the rules of God's law. And then he freely gave that life up as a sacrifice for sinners. That's what the cross of Christianity is all about. It's the moment when sinless Jesus died on behalf of sinners of all kinds. Uh, Jesus did that so that by his blood, the payment could be made so that you could be forgiven. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days after he died, he came back to life. And in so doing, he could make good on another promise that God had made. The promise of a new heart. A heart that's not stony and callous from sin anymore. A heart that's soft and alive. A heart made of flesh, given to us by God at the moment we come to him through Jesus Christ. That heart has the very law of God written onto it. So that you don't live a perfect life. But by the grace of Jesus, you want to live in a way that pleases him. Now, friend, if you have never come to God through Jesus Christ, right now, that call of the kingdom is being forcefully given to you. Uh, There's no telling how many more opportunities you'll have. You only have a lifetime. And there's even no guarantee how long your ears will be open to hear the call of the kingdom. So would you respond? All that's required is faith and repentance. Uh, To believe that Jesus really did do these things, to trust him enough to turn away from your sins, to renounce them totally, and throw yourself on the mercy of God through him. Now, friend, if you do that, you'll find the most amazing thing happen. You'll be forgiven now and forever. And a new era will have started in your heart. The rule of reign of God in the kingdom of God and a new heart given to you by Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about that, just hang out after the service. I'll be up front. I would love to explain how you can take that step into the kingdom of God today. Now, for all of us who are Christians here today, let's realize that this is something that has happened. Yes, there still in this new era are many things that remain the same. Uh, You still have your old habits of sin. This week, you may have fallen into fresh instances of sin. You can feel the tug of the old person to live away out of step with the law of God. And yet, sin does not have mastery over you. And in fact, you have something deep inside you that wants to obey because you want more than anything to please your beloved. And the law of God is your guide on how to do that. Now, for those of us here this morning, I think Jesus gave us one example, a powerful one, of that new heart in action. And that's those very uncomfortable, that very uncomfortable verse he wrote in verse 18 about divorce and remarriage. Frankly, as a preacher, this would be one of those verses to skip if you were in the habit of editing the scriptures. Because we live at a time where people... The society around think that there is un, um, virtually unlimited reasons to divorce and feel entitled, entitled to remarry. But Jesus gave a very high view of the institution of marriage and how weighty it is to break your oath in divorce and even further to extend that sin in remarriage. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery 
And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, undoubtedly, Jesus was aiming this at the Pharisees. Uh, Back in those days, there was almost no fault divorce, for the husband, that is. They found creative loopholes to say, you could divorce your wife, at least according to some rabbis, for virtually any reason. She burns her toast in the morning, she's out. But Jesus knows that was never the intention of what Deuteronomy 24 says. It was always to limit the damage of the sin of divorce, never to authorize it or to encourage it. But frankly, what Jesus says here is a much higher bar. He goes beyond what the Old Testament law said of divorce, and he says even to remarry after a divorce is to commit adultery, and even to drag the your partner into the adultery as well. Now, I don't have time to preach an entire sermon on divorce, but I will just say that the Bible has a lot more to say about the topic. And in fact, Jesus himself in the other gospels teases out that there are legitimate times for a Christian to divorce. Uh, If a spouse is unfaithful, the other spouse has grounds to divorce. If a spouse abandons another spouse, if an unbelieving spouse decides not to live with a Christian anymore, then the Christian has grounds for divorce. Uh, Jesus himself says some of those things. Paul says the others. Um, So he is not here giving a blanket prohibition or saying that divorce is the unpardonable sin in any way. If you have a divorce in your background, please don't go beyond what Jesus is intending to say. But what is he intending to say? It's that the new era brings a new heart, a heart that wants to live up to the covenant it makes, a heart that is faithful as God is faithful to us, a heart that is heartbroken if a marriage were to end in divorce, even if there are grounds. Uh, Jesus is revealing here that the new era, frankly, can only be lived in with a new heart. Brothers and sisters, that new heart is beating in you today. Uh, Your soul no longer stinks of sin because of the blood of Jesus on your behalf. He no longer thinks of you as an abomination. He now thinks of you as a dearly beloved son and daughter. And he's written his law in your heart so that you can live in a way pleases and honors your beloved. Would you remember that the new era of the kingdom requires a new heart from the king? And praise be to God in Christ Jesus, that heart is in each and every one of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for providing that which is needed, that we can have hope. Uh, We know that this era we live in straddles between the old and the new. Uh, There truly is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into our hearts. We truly do see the advance of that rule and reign as others bow before you and call you Lord. And yet we also know until you return that we will live with the reality of that old age our old sinful flesh, the brokenness, and even the stench of the sins of the world. 
Uh, Jesus, would you remind us of the time we live and help us with faith to look forward to that moment where you will return, a time when our hearts will be in sync with the world around us because righteousness will reign and your glory will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. Oh, Jesus, we ask you to give us now hearts of faith to look forward to that moment and now to worship through our joyful singing. We pray these things in your name. Amen.